Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We are down to the last few verses of uh, uh, this book, Philippians 4. We will begin with verse 19. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, how beautiful your word is. You, our Father, have spoken to your children down through the centuries. Thank you for, for preserving it so, so we could hear from you. And we pray now in these moments that you would cause your Holy Spirit to be our, our teacher and that he would apply your word to our lives. He would illumine our minds and our hearts to grasp what you are telling us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I told you this was temporary (laughs) and that we would be back together again, didn't I? Isn't that just like us to think when we hear temporary that it's only a few days, a couple of weeks, maybe? The first time I, I said that was about 15 months ago. And it wasn't planned the first time. We were recording a worship service that would be played the next Sunday. It was one of the first ones that we recorded uh, and were playing them the the following Sunday, so we recorded them early in the week. And then very quickly after I said that, I started getting input, please keep saying that. And so I continued to say it after every worship service after every video that uh, we did, which is far too many from my perspective. And I heard that what that was, was a hopeful reminder, a hopeful reminder that we would be back together 
Again, I'm so thankful I don't need to say that any longer. But today, we have another hopeful reminder. And that's right in front of us. And that is the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder in the sense that we remember what Jesus has done for us. And it's hopeful in the sense that that we know that this meal, this little piece of gluten-free bread and little bit of juice all sealed up, we know that that won't physically satisfy us. But it's a reminder that there's a big meal waiting for us. There's a feast waiting for us. And that this, as important as it is, because Jesus said, do this, do it again and again in remembrance of me. He told us to do that. Enjoying this, growing from this, being equipped by this, but always it's the hopeful reminder of that which is to come. So until that day, until Jesus comes back and fixes everything, makes everything right, it's not right right now. That's why this life can be so frustrating. That's why so many souls are weary. Things aren't right yet. But his promises are right. And his promises are true. And so as we have gone through this book of Philippians, we have looked at his his promises and, and called this... Joy, this uh, series, Joy in These Times. How could we have joy in these times, as difficult as they are? And yet, Paul was going through difficult times. And he pointed us again and again to how he had joy and we could too. So today, we're going to, in essence, look back at the week's before us. And we're going to see what his conclusions are because we've been in search of where did this joy come from? How could he have joy? And we found the answer to that. The answer is because of God's grace. Paul ends this book the way He began it by talking about grace. Chapter 1, verse 2, right after the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the book, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So there it is. We found the source of his joy, and that is that grace is necessary if we are to experience joy. Grace is absolutely necessary. And if we miss Paul's focus on grace, then we've missed the very thing that made joy 
possible for Paul and accessible to us. It's within our reach. So how would we define grace? I'm going to ask you to participate here in a moment, so pay attention. I like the definition using G-R-A-C-E as an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. Say it with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a great place to start when we're talking about grace and what it means. It is undeserved favor. And there are two aspects, at least, of grace. But I want to break it into two. One would be the initial aspect in regards to our salvation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Undeserved favor. Christ's expense. And then the ongoing aspect of grace, the empowering, that which enables us to grow, to endure difficult times, to get through this life and to do it with joy. In a few minutes at the end of our service, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. I want you to, I I know you know the words to that, but I want you to pay special attention today because it reflects those two aspects. You see, only Only the first verse talks about the initial aspect. And a lot of times that's what we focus on is coming to Christ. Amazing grace. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Talks about our salvation. But then the next four verses are all about how his grace applies to the rest of our life. All the way right to the end of our life. And then the last verse talks about how we will celebrate his grace forever. So pay attention, but we see what grace is reflected in that. So living in grace is living in joy. Uh, We're going to do a quick survey of the book because I've preached and other pastors have preached sermons on all of these Subjects, but I, I want us to hear them all in one shot today. And the first aspect is grace in our relationship with God because of what Christ has done. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it talks about what he did. It talks about Christ's expense who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where it starts. That is Christ's expense, his life and his death for us. But once again, grace continues in the life of the believer, in our growth and our faith. Chapter 2, verse 12, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, that's our relationship with God, but it is growing in that. And here's where we have to be cautious against feeling that, yes, I'm saved by grace, but my standing before God remains the same or it can even become better according to my works. That's not true. That's not biblical. That would lead to a legalism and lead us away from grace. There is no joy in trying to earn your way to God. No joy in that. It will only and always lead to frustration when we are legalistic and we try to work our way to God. And then we see also in terms of grace in our relationship with God, in terms of our righteousness before God in chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the, uh, verse 8, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. See, that's legalism. But that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we enter into our standing before God by grace and we remain in our standing before God by his grace. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, which is one of my all-time favorites, said this, living by grace instead of by works means you are free from the performance treadmill. It means God has already given you an A when you deserve an F. He has already given you a full day's pay even though you may have worked only one hour. It means you don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines to earn God's approval Jesus Christ has already done that for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus, and you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. Nothing you ever do will cause him to love you any more or any less. He loves you strictly by his grace given to you through Jesus. That's what his grace is. On the last day of Jesus' life, it was also the last day of another man's life. Little is known about him. Evidently, he lived his life taking from others 
as a thief. And now it had all caught up with him. There he was, being punished, about to die a terrible death, nailed to a cross next to Jesus. Somehow, he knew he was getting what he deserved. And somehow, he knew that Jesus, the one next to him, was not getting what he deserved. The thief asked him for a place in his kingdom, knowing that he had nothing to offer. And Jesus granted it. We will never grasp the beauty of grace. We'll never have the amazement that we should have toward grace until we realize we are just like that thief. We are exactly like him. Oh, maybe we haven't stolen from others for a living, but we have nothing to offer. There is the thief. Finally, with nothing in his hands, usually he had other people's possessions in his hands. He had nothing in his hands because they were nailed to a cross. And yet, he went to Jesus. And Jesus, not expecting anything from him, said, yes, you'll be a part of my kingdom. The thief finally got it. And we have nothing to offer him. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. You see, that's it. That's when we begin to understand grace when we say, here I am, Lord, I've got nothing to pay you or repay you. And then we understand, he says, that's okay, I've, I've paid it all. All of it, I've already paid. That's what grace is in our relationship to God. But if that relationship is genuine, it will spill over in various ways, and that's what we see in this book as well in terms of grace in our relationship with one another. Uh, Paul talked about humility in chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's other-centeredness. And that's not natural. It's supernatural. We will not consistently be others-centered until we realize Christ is in us and it is by his grace that we can and are to do that. 
And then he spoke of our unity with one another. Chapter 1, verse 27. I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's our unity of purpose. And we see the outworking of that when he dealt with Euodia and Syntyche who were having some kind of a conflict over something that wasn't a biblical right or wrong. It was a disputable matter. And he said, work it out. And by the way, you, help them work it out. It was that important that they know the forgiveness that they have received from Christ and they pass it on to others as well. Jesus on the cross, once again, he looked at his killers and he said, Father, forgive them. He asked that they would be forgiven. Jesus showed his grace by going to the cross, then on the cross he showed his grace. And then we see grace in dealing with the circumstances of life. And here's where it really comes down to what we are facing, right? We know in, uh, from chapter 1, from things that were said here, historically we know that Paul was in prison. Everything that Paul says in this letter has to be understood in the context of his circumstances at the time. No one could ever say, well, that's easy for him to say because everything's going right for him. He's got it made. He said all this in horrible circumstances. And he had terrible circumstances periodically through his life. Much of his life after he became a believer, after he became a follower of Christ, much of his life was filled with trials. But look how God used even those circumstances. In chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And then he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What? Saints in Caesar's household? He was around soldiers all the time. And there is the belief and understanding that some of them came to Christ as well. But what he says to the, the uh, Philippian church is, you know what? There are believers that work in Caesar's household. We don't know what task they had, but he knew of them. What was he telling them by that? That the power of the gospel was way more powerful than the power of Caesar. Don't worry, that's the case. God's people are everywhere. God puts them there, and he raises them up. How encouraging must that have been for the church 
And then he talks about contentment. This is a hard one, isn't it? In chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He's saying I've experienced both ends of it. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, we just looked at this a a few weeks ago. But the point being that he had faced it all. And he realized, you don't have to just learn to be content when, when things aren't going well. You need to learn to be content when things are going well. And most people experience both at one time or another. Some experience one or the other more. But these are all a part of the life as long as we are in this life. And he says, I've learned the secret. And as we said a couple weeks ago, the secret's not a secret. Here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ, through him who gives me strength. That's the secret. I can't do it. I can do it in him. So here's what I am convinced that we can do. Take that word strength. And put grace in there. That's where we get our, our strength. I can do all things through him who gives me his grace. Which leads to strength. Which enables me to have joy. Get it? You see how it works? And then there's another major area that Paul spoke of, and that was facing death. Chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No one sees dying as gain without the grace of Christ in their life. No one. They may pretend to, but they're kidding themselves. If they say that. For many, that's a really hard part of life. I don't know any other way to say it. Some die suddenly, but for most, it is a process. And it's often a hard process. Richard Baxter, who was a a pastor in the Puritan days, said this about that in preaching to his congregation about death. He said, it is a mercy to have the flesh brought down and weakened by painful sickness. You hear that? He said, it is a mercy because that helps conquer our natural unwillingness to die. Our sickness and death are sent by the same love that sent us a Savior and that sent us His Spirit and secretly and sweetly changed our hearts and knit them to Himself in love. See what He was saying? 
pastor's heart saying, you know what, none of us want to go through that. But when we do, it is God's way of helping us to let go of this life and helping others around to say, yeah, it's time to let go. And he says, that's a mercy. And he said, it's given to us by the love of our Father for us. And it helps us because we are naturally unwilling to die. I told you on uh, Wednesday in my little uh, message about what today was going to look like, I said there's a surprise in Philippians. And here's the surprise. I have called this series Joy in These Times. And today we've talked all about grace. In the original language, joy is from the same root word as grace. It comes from the same root word. They aren't exactly the same, but they are intertwined. They are dependent upon one another. They are related. Joy is grace recognized. Joy is possible because of God's grace. Grace is necessary if we are to experience his joy. And because of his grace, joy should be the response. And that is how we have joy in these times. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for this beautiful letter that we call a book. For these words from you to us. Will you bring comfort? Will you use them? so that we can experience your grace and may that lead to joy in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.